My guest for the day grew up a biracial kid attending Catholic school in Minnesota. A seemingly perfect student, he had a lot going for him before his mental health reached a low point while in college, causing him to drop out. Now, he has used his adversity to become a better educator and is now president of the Madison Teachers Union. I'm Ben Brown, and this is the Madisonian Podcast. Michael Jones is the dean of students at my high school. Frankly, it seems strange to call it my high school because I haven't actually stepped foot in the high school as an actual student. He is the face of the school for the students, appearing on the announcements nearly every day. I could tell pretty quickly that he was dedicated to us students and in our education. My mom, as an employee at, at my high school, also spoke highly of him and encouraged me to look more into him and to reach out to him. Maybe a week later, he joined the Zoom call of the Restorative Justice Club that I am a member of and contributed thought-provoking ideas to the members of the club on how to expand the group of students to include more people of color, an action we have been trying to figure out how to make happen for some time. I was interested in his background and, and found out that he was just elected president of MTI, the, the Madison Teachers Union, and I knew the importance of, of the union to people like my mother. Reading about his work in journalism and a couple of pieces he has written, I became interested in, in talking with him. The Madisonian podcast has opened my eyes to a possible future for myself in, in journalism and interviewing. In the Zoom call after the interview, he gave me affirmation about what I'm doing with this podcast and my line of questioning. It meant quite a bit to me coming from someone who has had experience in the field and from someone I now look up to. Now please enjoy my interview with Mr. Michael Jones. Uh, so I was born in Milwaukee in 1982. Uh, uh, my dad was uh my dad leon jones was a uh truck driver but before that he was uh he served in the air force uh he joined during the korean war and uh finished in vietnam and it was actually during the vietnam war that he met my mom i'm half black half vietnamese um and he brought my mom back to the united states in 1975 uh after the war and they moved back to milwaukee uh my dad was from Alabama, but his family moved uh, to Milwaukee during the Great Migration, where a lot of black uh, families move, moved from the south to uh, urban areas like Milwaukee, Chicago, just up north in general to one escape uh, a lot of the racism in the south, but then also for job opportunities back in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, but yeah, so after they moved back to Milwaukee, um, he uh, they had, I have an, I have one older half sister and then another older sister where we share the same parents and, um, and I'm the youngest. And then when I was a little kid, when I was like two, two or three, we actually moved to Minnesota, a suburb of St. Paul called Egan, Minnesota. Some people know it, uh, where it's like five minutes away from the mall of America. And that's, that's where I grew up primarily. That's where I grew up until I went to uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison. What um, was the decision to, to move to Minnesota? You know, I've asked my parents, I asked my parents that. My dad's since passed away, but uh, when I talked to my mom about it, I think it was just, um, she was feeling a little isolated in Milwaukee. Being a Vietnamese woman uh, in Milwaukee in the 70s and 80s, there wasn't a, a big community. Um, in there in in milwaukee uh and there was one in the twin Cities, so she felt like it helped her kind of uh reconnect with vietnamese people and and a large vietnamese culture that was uh you know thriving in saint paul and minneapolis uh, my dad being a truck driver was very go with the flow so he was fine because his job just kind of takes him all over the country so that was 
uh, their decision was to move move uh, from Milwaukee to the Twin Cities for that for that reason was I think just to kind of help my mom feel more connected while she was in America. What was kind of the school experience like for you, and what what kind of student were you? Uh, so I was a very precocious young person. Um, uh, because I don't know if this is just true with a lot of people who are like the youngest in their family, but I, because my sisters were nine and seven years older than me, I tended to just like grow up faster than most. So like I read earlier, I like knew like certain cultural things a lot earlier than most people. Um, and so I actually entered kindergarten early, uh, too. And then, um, I went to, I actually went to Catholic schools from first grade until, until I graduated from high school. Um, so I did private school, uh, that entire time. And as a student, I was, I was like the kind of student, I always kind of describe it to other students. Like I was a student that, um, I would, my grades were great. Um, you know, I did well. I never had any issues with teachers except for gym, but that was just cause I didn't like running. Um, but like, I, I was also the sort of kid that would try to get away with stuff like, like low key while the teachers weren't, weren't looking nothing like bad, nothing like getting into trouble with my friends or anything. But I was like the kid who would like do all the homework before the teacher, like while the teacher was midway through the lesson, I was the kid who like passed like snarky notes, like in order to, you know, and joking with my friends while while the teacher was teaching um and then but i i rarely ever got caught because my grades were good and because generally i was respectful i i could you know be a respectful young person um so i wasn't the kid who interrupted class or or you know was quote unquote the troublemaker i could i i I laid low at least that was like kind of my my deal from kindergarten through eighth grade yeah do you remember um being aware of, of of race or or when do you think you became aware of race or that maybe you look different than the other people in in catholic school i i think being biracial i just always naturally kind of knew i was a little different just like i don't i i don't want to speak for other people who come from multiple ethnic backgrounds but like uh when your dad is black and your mom is asian you tend to just kind of know, notice, you know, when you go to family functions, you know, when you're with your dad's side of the family and you're, you know, I tended to be kind of the lightest, lighter, lightest skinned one there amongst, um, amongst the Joneses. And then when I went to the Lee or the lay family, you know, my mom's functions, uh, family functions of, of all Vietnamese folks. And I'm the darkest skinned person there. And, um, you know, it's just, it was something that was always, I can't remember, recall a time where that wasn't like out there. Um, and going to Catholic schools, um, and honestly also growing up in the suburbs in Minnesota, like I just, I knew like, it was just something that was like, I knew I was the only one that looked like me aside from my sister. Like we were the only ones that looked like us in our neighborhood. And so when I went to school, it was just same the same stuff where i was like okay i'm like one of the only black kids i'm one of the only asian kids uh in my class and that was just kind of you know it's like okay it it was one of those things i never knew anything else than that so that was just my norm because i it was like oh well this is where i this is where i am i just stick out wherever i go yeah, and I, I guess I forgot to ask, like, what what was kind of your family's decision to put you in a Catholic school or or, or to to give you that that kind of education? You know, it's funny. My mom, so my mom grew up is Catholic. She's pretty devout uh, Catholic still to this day. She's like one of those people that goes to church every day. So I know Catholic education was extremely important to her. My dad, on the other hand, was more interested in, in sending me to public school, but because he was the truck driver and like out of the house and my mom was the primary parent during that time, um, you know, it was ultimately her decision and she wanted to make sure I had a religious background. All that being said, um, if I, if, I, if I just need to be perfectly blunt, like the like rigor or the, 
things we learned in at least at least in the Catholic schools I went to were not that different from from public school. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like we were doing calculus while everyone was doing algebra. It was like we were I was on the same path. It was the only the only differences I honestly can recall or see now is that we had religion class and maybe the types of materials, whether it was like which books we read in English or how we looked at certain things in social studies or um, or whatnot, like uh, might have been different just based off which books the school chose. But the level and the quality of education were were very similar, I would argue, I argue. Um, especially now that I've been working in public education for 12 years, there really wasn't that much a difference. I think sometimes that gets caught up in terms of thinking that private schools are somehow more quality uh, than anything. It's just um, in my, in my experience, it's like the type of students that go there, the type of teachers that teach there, they're just as quality as, as those in public schools. Um, it's just usually maybe the social dynamics are different, uh, which I think is really one of the only differences. Yeah. So what was kind of like your your middle school, high school experience and, and kind of what did you think you might want to like go on to do for as a career? You know, that's it's uh, something that was always changing. I never really had a strong career path. You know, there's some people I don't know if you felt this way, like, you know, uh, you were just mentioning about being into like like wanting to pursue a career in ballet, like um like some people just know right away <laughs> once they do something that, Hey, this is where I want to, this is where my path is going to go. Like, and I have friends like that. Like they were just like, you know, especially it seems like in the arts or in like, like people who my friends who are like, end up being writers or performers. Like they knew from like when they were like eight years old, the first time they tried something that this was their path. Right. Me, I was a little different in that. When I was in middle school, I guess I began wanting to be a doctor because I, you know, I watched a lot of ER, which was a show back in the day. Um, you know, old heads will know what I'm talking about. Like when ER first came out, like that was like revolutionary TV. So like I was like, oh, OK. And they had one character in there who is uh, Eric LaSalle, who is uh, black and one of the only black characters in the show and really on TV. Um, playing a surgeon. So I was like, okay, I guess I could get into surgery. I was good at science. I, I, I was good at, you know, my grades were great in science and math. And I was like, why not? That changed in high school once I took honors biology. And then um, I quickly learned I did not have the strong interest. <laughs> and I figured if I wasn't going to be good at biology, or if biology wasn't my jam, then chances are I'm not going to be a doctor. So like, um, so then I spent a few years just trying, like, honestly, not really having any understanding or, or career path. And then I got really into politics my junior year of high school. I attended this uh, program called Boy State. Um, there's actually a documentary that just came out on it. I think it's on Apple TV. And um, but I attended Boy State in Minnesota. I learned a lot about, like, just government and, like, just kind of the energy that goes into there. And that actually really fueled me into wanting to go into politics and then international politics. So then when I came to UW-Madison, that was my original, that was my goal was to get a degree in political science and international politics, um, which I eventually got. But then actually when I went through college, I ended up realizing how much I liked writing. I wrote for the Daily Cardinal, which is one of the two student newspapers on campus. And, um, it was a really huge part of not only like just my identity, but also like my social life and the friends I made. And I met my wife at the newspaper. So like, it's, it's a really important part. And so again, my career, my, what I thought my career path would be changed from politics to, to writing and journalism. And I tried that out for till my early to mid twenties. I realized like my passion just kind of died out for it and that I was more interested in seeing my name in the byline than I was about the actual craft of writing. So then I, that's when I actually began trying to find things that made me passionate and that was interacting with people. And one of the things that I was really, really like interested in was working with students. Cause that's, you know, 
you get to interact. That's just like, just get paid to interact with people all day doing that. And uh, that's how I got and kind of fell into education by so, my mid twenties. Yeah. So why do you think your, your passion kind of died out for, for journalism or, or why do you think that, 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 that thing that you thought you were going to go on to do for maybe like the rest of your adult life, why did that suddenly come to like this dead end? Well, I think sometimes I think with certain careers, I think with a lot of careers, there's a difference between like, like there's like a confluence of passion and talent. And like, I have a, you know, I'll just, I'm just going to break. I think I can write pretty well. Um, but what happened was my passion, I had to like, at some point, cause I actually was freelancing. I freelanced for like the Wisconsin state journal for the cap times. I wrote movie reviews for, for some websites. This was like around 2006, 2007. But at some point I realized I was more interested in seeing my name than I was in, in like actually like, like working on the craft. Meanwhile, I have friends from the newspaper, from the student newspaper, who went on to become like, you know, journalists at Milwaukee Journey Sentinel, um, Wisconsin State Journal, uh, Chicago Tribune, New York Times, and Wall Street Journal. And like, there, we were all passionate, but like, and we had talent for writing, but their passion was like, I want to get to the heart of the story. I want to like really uncover something. I really want to get to the depth of this or find an angle that like, you know, no one else is seeing and illuminate that and put a spotlight on that. And that's like where really great journalism comes from. And I realized I'm not a, there's no way I could be a good journalist because I just don't have an interest in that. I was just interested in writing and interested in like saying snarky things or, or like kind of being there. So like, I think at some point it's almost like sift, sifting and winnowing. You kind of realize like, okay, at some point, like, unless I change my complete mindset and, and dedicate myself with the same amount of passion that I'm seeing my friends and colleagues do, I'm, there's always going to be a limit. And, um, then I had to reevaluate and be like, and what am I really passionate about? And that's when I realized like human interaction was what made me passionate. And, uh, and that's why I moved into education. <laughs> but yeah, there's, I think, I think, and I think that's true with like, you know, I'm a fan of podcasts. I hear this a lot with like my friends who are, they got their own podcasts or interview subjects. It's like, there's really, di there's a big difference between like, those who are like really famous for what they do and those who are really good at what they do. And they are like super duper passionate about it. And like almost to a point of mania. And it's like, you know, I had to be honest that I wasn't at, my passion wasn't like that for, for writing or for journalism. So, so how did you get into education or what was your transition from career to career there? So I was, so in order to pay the bills, I worked for a bank. Actually, it's now BMO Harris Bank, but it's the, it's it, back in the day, it was called M&I Bank. Um, it's the one on Midvale, um, right by uh, Hilldale Mall. Um, and I worked loans in 2007, and uh, which was like, you know, the economy was about to collapse. And I remember having a lot of conversations with people about their loans where they couldn't pay them, like they couldn't pay for their house, they couldn't pay for their car, and they they couldn't read the contract that they had signed. And we had given, like my bank had given these people like hundreds of thousands of dollars and people who couldn't read their contract. And I was like, why couldn't people read? Or why, why were people like having a hard time reading? And I was just thinking about it. And I inevitably like through because I was doing this customer service over the phone would talk to people and get to know them and like help them read their contract. And I realized I really there was like a there was like this intrinsic joy I was getting out of it, out of that part of the job. The other parts where I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry, we're going to have to take your home like that part was like soul crushing. So I realized, OK, is there something I could do where I could help people learn how to do something? But is there something that I you know, without having to do the soul crushing part. And um, that's when I actually began volunteering to be a tutor at Memorial High School. 
in uh, one of the ESL classrooms and um, it was a huge revelation. Like I just got a, I got an, ex I got a feeling out of that, that I'd never experienced anything anywhere else. And it was just like the sheer, the sheer joy of the experience. And I actually also began working in the MSCR program at Blackhawk Middle School and realizing I just love just kind of interacting with students and, and, you know, the back and forth and the learning about them and, and hearing about them and, 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 uh, and like the perspective of young people and like, you know, they, we can be experiencing the same thing and they're seeing it from a whole different angle. And that really illuminates like what I'm thinking. And then I could provide the same thing. It's just, a, it's a very beautiful and unique environment. Um, and I think in the past year, we've come to realize how, how, like how much many of us miss that both students and staff. Um, but yeah, that's how I got into education was just kind of just trying to follow a passion and idea and then just like kind of going from there. Yeah. So what, what was kind of your next, next step in education or how did you kind of work your way, you know, from tutor to, to a, a teaching position or, or, so I actually, so, um, one of the things I didn't mention before was, uh, after, so when I was, I went to UW Madison, I did not graduate initially. Um, there was a lot of undi I had some undiagnosed mental health issues, primarily anxiety and depression that I was not addressing and taking care of myself. And I kind of burned out, um, cause I did a lot of like avoidance, a lot of like work avoidance. Um, so I was actually one credit shy from graduating. So the first thing I had to do was actually graduate from college. So I took a night class at UW, passed it, got my degree in 2007. And then, um, and then I actually quit my job at MNI or at the bank. Uh, my wife, now the person who's my wife, she was my girlfriend at the time. She was, she had a really steady job. I decided to like, I was going to work at pick and save and like just work a bunch of different jobs. The MSCR job, like the after school job also paid me. I was still doing some freelance writing. So I just kind of combined all that to like make at least most of my money. And then um, I just went to UW. Uh, like you can audit classes, you could take classes, you could return as a, as a special, what's called a special student. Um, and I just took like education classes. I took classes that was like, kind of like teachers should, should be taking. And then, um, I got into this program in Milwaukee called the Milwaukee teacher fellows, where they will give you a license to be a teacher provided you continue like taking classes at night, you're, um, learning on the job. So it's kind of like a, almost like a paid internship. And so my first year of teaching. I was in that program and then I got my official Wisconsin teacher's license the year, you know, at the end of the, at that school year. And, and that's how, that's how I officially kind of became quote unquote a teacher. Right. So I, I want to just interject and, and like, um, ask you, I mean, you were seemingly like a, a like a perfect student in, in high school and, and why did, where did that, um, mental health, um, come from? Where did your struggles come from? If, if you can even attribute where they came from, because I know that, that there's not always like this concrete reason. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Where did I think, I think, um, the pursuit of being a perfect student triggered a lot of that. Um, see, I think also one of the things was I put a, and I still do put a huge amount of pressure on myself. And I remember when I was a young, when I was a young per, when I was younger, I kind of built in my head this idea that like, if I got anything wrong on a test, on a quiz, on a, on a homework assignment, then I was automatically a failure. Like I had to have a hundred percent and that putting that amount of pressure on yourself, like inevitably creates like some really negative behaviors. Um, you know, and, you know, as anyone who, who's delved into, like, the mental health field knows, like, you know, depression and anxiety are often, like, chemical imbalances in the brain. So, like, I might have had those imbalances in the brain, but they were also triggered by, like, my mentality, uh, like, and 
especially as school got more difficult, you know, like high school, I began taking honors classes. I'm in AP classes, you know, my junior and senior year, you know, you're, since you're challenged more, you're more likely to make mistakes. You're more likely to get things wrong. And like my reaction to that was not good. It was not like, okay, what can I do to make this better? Or that's okay. How do we fix this? But it was like, oh, I must be terrible. I must be stupid. I must be the worst student in the world. I'm letting down my family, um, which is a dynamic. A lot of children who, especially who come from like immigrant families, uh, you know, a tribute. I've talked to a lot of students, especially students who like their first generation American students in this country. And there's a huge amount of pressure that, you know, sometimes it's explicit, like from the parents, sometimes it's implicit, like, hey, I'm working three jobs just to get you to this place to make your, sure your world is better. You better, you know, you better do something with it. So I kind of felt that from like my mom's story that, you know, she came from, she's fleeing a war torn country coming to the U.S. She did work three jobs. She would work from 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. at a factory. Like my dad's a truck driver. He's on the road like 60, 70 hours a week. He has a bad knee. Like he, all he, all my parents did was work hard. And it's like, if I got something wrong on a social studies test, well, then I just failed them. I just failed all their hard work. And that sort of mentality just kind of built up and built up. So, and while I, in some ways, you know, I got good grades. So like I was able to go to a great school, university like UW-Madison. What inevitably happened was by the time I got to college and things got like extremely tough, you know, extremely challenging, I was not well equipped to deal with that, like mental health wise, like I didn't have a good mentality. So then when those, when you're used to A's and B's and then all of a sudden you're submitting papers or doing work and you're getting C's and D's, and you're just like, I'm trying, I tried, I tried really hard on this. Like I gave it all, all that I got. And this is the end result. Some people, if, you know, if, if your mind is in a good place, you're thinking, okay, what can I do differently? What can I do to get more support? What can I do to get help? But I'm not asking for help because I'm thinking I got to do this by myself. I only, I can fix this. And that means I, um, I have to just work harder or I can just pretend like it doesn't, <laughs> like the problem doesn't exist. I think we have, you know, there are plenty of students who know this feeling, people who know this feeling. Like sometimes it's easier to not do the work and pretend like it doesn't exist. So then you don't have to, you don't have to uh, live with that negative feeling in your head, right? Like why do this when I can play video games? Why do this when I can watch a movie or watch some TV? Why do this when I could just escape and, and, you know, just be on my phone or do something else. Um, and that inevitably has consequences, but it's like, you keep on just pretending like, okay, that consequence will just, just got to kick it down the road, kick it down the road. But inevitably there's a wall, there's an end of the road. Um, for me that came with, uh, not graduating from college. And then it took me a few years just to kind of get back and actually accept that and not pretend like I, like there wasn't anything wrong. Like it took a very long time for me to realize, Hey, I need therapy. Hey, I need like to talk to someone, uh, about my struggles with this. Hey, uh, like I really need to, you know, maybe take some medication or just like do some different things in my life. And that's been, that's been a huge blessing, but it took me a very long time to kind of get to that point. Um, yeah. Do you think that your your struggles with mental health have influenced the way that you connect with students or, or um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think I could be the educator that I am if I wasn't honest about my mental health. And I actually think it's, I won't say it's a superpower, but I think it, it, it is something that I'm extremely proud of that I've, I have dealt with it and continue to deal with it. Because I think over the last few years, we've begun to realize how, how we need to make sure that our students and people in this education system are supported mentally and emotionally. Um, that used to not be a th as big of a thing. It used to just be like, well, you know, unless you're trying to like take your own life, you're, you know, we don't have to deal with it. 
And now it's like, we're realizing, Hey, we need to, we need to be honest. And I think, you know, when I've talked to students, especially as Dean, when you're talking to students and it's like, okay, they haven't shown up to any of their zoom classes. Hey, they're, they're, uh, not doing any of their homework. Sometimes it's easy to just attribute it to them being lazy, you know, or that they don't, they don't try or they're just spoiled and they just don't care. And in my experience, like I've been there, I've been the student that avoided stuff, you know, in college. And I know it's like, sometimes it's like they want it. And sometimes, and a lot of times after, you know, you kind of just kind of have a quiet moment with them. It's like, okay, let's be honest. Is this because you don't want to do it? Or is it like, it feels too tough and you don't want to try because it, it would hurt that it would, that you would feel like you failed. Like if you tried it, gave it your best, and you feel like it wasn't enough that that you don't want to live with that, that emotion, that feeling. And, you know, a lot of times they're like, yeah, I'm just, I, I don't want to feel, I'm sick and tired of feeling bad. And then, and I'd rather not try than to try and to feel bad. And, um, so I think my own experiences and my own struggles with mental health helped me like empathize with students going through that. And when students are saying, even students with like, 4.0, 3.9, 3.8 GPAs, especially now, like when we're doing this all virtual and it's, it's a lot, um, there's not that same level of connectivity with people, you know, like in, in a physical, as opposed to being in a physical building, you know, there's a lot of students out there who are struggling or just like, I'm really having a hard time with all of this. And I think instead of being like, oh, well, You'll figure it out just like, you know, just like, you know, just loosen up and chill out and things will be okay. Being like, yeah, you know, sometimes it, the best thing you can do is validate and, and be like, no, you're not imagining things. Things are bad. And I've been there. I might be in there right now with you. <laughs> like, let's, uh, let's try to, let's, you know, let's just try to work this out together. You know, I feel like I've, I've been able to help some students at least work through that because of my experiences. Yeah. So how did you, um, I mean, kind of tell us about what, what education position you, you came into, um, to -hmm. start and kind of where you've gone from there. So, um, I started, so I got into special education, um, which, you know, ranges from students with, uh, learning disabilities to students with maybe more emotional, emotional behavioral, uh, issues and, or physical issues like mobility and things like that. And, um, so I started there just kind of was like, Hey, I feel like, you know, especially with my experiences with mental health, it's something I think I could help with and kind of helping, helping these young people kind of realize their fullest potential. I started in Milwaukee, like I mentioned before, in the teaching fellows, my wife, um, we had just got married my first year of teaching. She actually works for the University of Wisconsin. She does a lot of cool like tech stuff. Like she does something called user experience design. And she's actually like now the head of the program um, at UW. So she was actually driving like from Milwaukee to Madison every day and back. So that's about three hours if you're on a good day. Um, and we just kind of at towards the end of the school year, we were just like, okay, either she needs to find a job in Milwaukee or I need to find a job in Madison. And it made more sense for us to move back to Madison. Um, so I uh, applied and I got a job as a special education teacher at Middleton High School. Um, so I was there for four years. And that, but I realized I live in Mil- Madison. I live on the east side. I love being in Madison. I want to teach Madison students. So I ended up moving to Blackhawk Middle School where I did MSCR before and uh, I became a positive behavior coach because being a special ed teacher, it's actually, there's a lot of similarities in terms of being a school-wide positive behavior coach because you're kind of dealing with kind of all the ups and downs that come with being in a school. Um, So I was a positive behavior coach at Blackhawk for about five years and and, that, and and during that time you got on Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, during that time I got on Jeopardy. Yeah, that was wild because like that was like that was my first year in Madison 
at Black Hawk, I was actually dealing with a kid who was like in the middle of a, like just got into a fight. So I'm like sitting with it, you know, anyone who's seen a fight before between two students knows you take one, one person, or like one of the adults takes one of the students to one room, one of the adults takes another student to another room. You know, you try to make sure they're calmed down, you try to get their stories, and then you kind of figure it out from there. Call parents, do what you need to do. So I'm dealing with the kid in the room. He's calming down. He just needs, like, sometimes it's not, the adult shouldn't talk at all. You're just, like, letting the kid, like, do what they need to do. Yeah, decompress, calm down. So they just need a quiet spot, no judgment, just like, all right, let's just chill out. So while this is happening, I get a call, and it just shows a California number on my phone. I'm like, all right, must be a spam thing. Turn it, turn it down. I get the call again. I'm like, what the heck is this? So I, I literally just like swipe down, just like, listen, I'm about to like, I'm, I'm in the middle of something. Like, is this like a telemarketer thing? They're like, no, this is a producer at Jeopardy. <laughs> um, you know, you pass the test. Uh, would you want to come in for an audition? And, and uh, I don't know, my cell phone's like really loud or something. Cause the kid is sitting right next to me. He's like, yeah, you do. Yeah. You want to be on Jeopardy. And I was like, Calm down, Antonio. Like, all right, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. So yeah, no, it was a wild experience. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, but yeah, I love being at Blackhawk. But I realized uh, about a couple years ago, um, I was still doing like special ed work, and I wanted to do something a little different. Um, the dean position opened up at West. I was like, okay, I haven't done high school in a while. Um, it'd be a new challenge. And, uh, I talked with Dr. Baran about it, um, interviewed and it seemed like a good fit. So I, I came over not last year, but yeah, I came over last year, 20, 2019, 2020 was my first year. So, so yeah, that's how I ended up here. Yeah. So how, how do you think your experience in the, in this past year and in the, in your years working at Blackhawk as well, um, how do you think it, it deferred from uh, your experience at Middleton High High School for four years? I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. Some things are very similar. I think sometimes when you think Middleton versus the north side of Madison, which is where Black Hawk is, versus Madison West, that, you know, the kids would somehow be different or the, the vibes are different. But actually, it's, it's very much the same wherever you go. Because everyone's kind of working through the same stuff. Everyone's like a everyone's a teenager or a young person just trying to figure out what's going on in their life, and at the same time, just trying to work on how to be, you know, uh, working on academics and obtaining knowledge and finding finding things in themselves. So there's so many. There's more, far more similarities than differences. I would say my my approaches have honestly been amongst the adults that I tend to work with is that like sometimes um, honestly being more cognizant and more vocal about um, not only my own racial identity, but just about understanding the issues of racism within our education system. I was not as even being a black educator, even being an Asian educator, um, I was not as vocal at Middleton as I have been in Madison, uh, both at Blackhawk and and at at west and it's all it's also like an ongoing journey it's not like it was a perfect straight line it was like i've made mistakes i've i have my own work, stuff i got to work on um and that's that's a that's a huge that's a huge thing that hopefully i can impart you know on this community which is like we all got stuff to work on no one is like some sort of brilliant expert who gets everything right it's like we're all we're all just figuring this stuff out um and so so yeah just just trying to be on it i think i'm a lot more honest about like what is acceptable and what is not acceptable there's a lot of stuff at middleton where i was like man it's not my problem i'll just kind of walk away and focus on my job and like here i'm a little i'm a little bit more like no this is our problem and we need to we need to figure out how we're going to fix it um yeah. Yeah. So when did you kind of start to get involved in, in the union? Um, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, you know, so my dad was, my dad, when he was a truck driver, was a teamster. So, like, I would always see the union stuff kind of around the house. But I never really understood it until um, my first year of teaching was the year before Act 10. So back in, like, 11 years ago, anything before 10 years ago, if you were a teacher, you were automatically a part of the union. You didn't have any say in it. You were in. Um, and that was the big thing with Act 10 was that that changed and people could then have the choice of being in the union, which meant that, like, you know, if you didn't want to be in the union, you didn't want to have to pay the dues, you didn't have to. But that then kind of weakened teacher positions or worker positions. So I've always been a part of the union, but I think my, my um, like, stepping up and having different roles in the union really happened after Act 10. I did a little bit when I was in Middleton. I was what's called a building representative, meaning that like if a teacher had a problem with a principal or with the district, they would bring in a building representative just to make sure they had like a, it was almost like bringing a friend along when you're dealing with some drama um, sort of thing. So I was that, that actually got me into a little trouble at Middleton, which is, uh, so when I came to Madison, I was like, okay, I'm going to be a part of the union, but I don't want to do any leadership stuff. I just want to kind of lay low. And, uh, I ended up like having to like step up because no one else wanted to be the building rep at my at Blackhawk. I was like, fine, I'll do it. I'll show up to some meetings, but I won't say or do anything. I'll just like take the notes and bring it back to the rest of the members. And uh, <laughs> each and every time I would like show up to these meetings, people, you know, I would make some sort of snide remark or snarky remark or be like, hey, that we could do it this way. And sooner or later people are like oh you should be on this committee you should be on that committee you should do this you should do that and i have a hard i had a hard time saying no just because you know ego and um i i i ended up doing more committee stuff and then a few years ago i was i was encouraged by the president of the union to run for vice president so i ran for vice president i got it um and then I'd been vice president for the last few years. And then I was honestly going to not run for president this time around because our president uh, is stepping down. And but I decided I'm going to I was like, well, I actually have now all these ideas since I've been in all these rooms. I have all these feelings about how the district should go, how we should be treating teachers and kids like I guess I should speak up a lot more and. So that's when I ran for president, and I just got elected a few weeks ago, which is a really interesting time to be elected president, right, when they're talking reentry and the teach-out and all that fun stuff. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess, can you talk a little bit about um, reentry and reopening schools? And, and I know you were opposed to this in in December when you wrote an, uh, an opinion piece. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, for the State Journal, I think, or, or Madison.com, or one of those uh, journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, has your has your opinion changed on that, or just talk about what that means for the district, teachers, the union? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the context of when I wrote uh, the editorial or the letter to the editor in December was in response to the State Journal's editorial that we should be opening schools, and this was at a time when the infection rates were still really high and we still didn't have a vaccine. Like there was no, there was really no discussion of the vaccine. And it was like, okay, are we doing this just to like appease business interests? Are we doing this in the best interest of kids? Are we doing this in the best interest? Who are we pleasing here? Um, or who are we doing this for? Cause they were like, well, the kids are really suffering, which is like, listen, I talk to students like you every day. Like I know students are having a hard time with this. I'm having a hard time with virtual. I would rather we be having this conver- this podcast interview in the Joe Thomas room, like just across from each other, you know? Um, I would rather be in the building. But I also know, like, the reason it really hit me is uh, the young man who passed away at East, Isai Morocho, uh, was a student of mine at Blackhawk. I taught a class, uh, study skills. He was, I saw him grow up from sixth to eighth grade. Uh, He's a wonderful, he, he was a wonderful young man who loved his family, had really good friends, just like a lot of potential. And to see that all snuff away from coat, be snuffed away from COVID, like I feel a certain way about that. And 
I have to kind of be like, okay, my desire to come into the building can't supersede the safety and the health of, you know, the children and the staff in this community. Um, that has obviously evolved a little bit since, you know, the vaccinations have been out and the district has committed some money to improve certain buildings or, you know, make sure things are able to, things are able to happen like opening windows, better air system, you know, making sure that we have like PPE and masks and gloves and sanitizer and all that. Honestly, a lot of things that weren't really in buildings until the union began saying stuff about like how this stuff needs to be in buildings before we get back in. What, how I feel about it now is some buildings, from what I've talked to teachers and administrators, and now that I'm kind of union president-elect, some buildings are ready. Like next week, when some of the kindergartners are going to come, they're going to come into a safe environment. I have no doubt about that. There are other buildings where they still don't have hot water or it takes 30 minutes, you know, to turn on the, turn on the faucets for hot water to come out. Like those buildings have been neglected for multiple years. I think if you talk to any current MMSD student or even ones who've just graduated in the last 10 years, they would say, oh yeah, I remember when, you know, this, this thing broke or all of a sudden the day we didn't have any air conditioning or we didn't have any heat or this thing, you know, I mean, anyone who's been in an MMSD building knows that a lot of those buildings have not been kept up to date. Um, and that is, and that's not, that's not because of COVID. That's not COVID's fault. That's honestly not even the district's fault. That, that, that fault lies in our federal and state government, not giving the districts enough money to keep these things, keep these things going. So we've been working on a shoestring budget for like multiple decades, um, just doing enough to get by to make people happy, but not doing enough to actually like have super duper safe environments. We just do enough just to meet the rule criteria. And we wanted, I wanted to still, we still need to speak up on that and be like, you know, some of these things, it's not COVID's fault. It's not the principal's fault. It's not the superintendent's fault. It's not the board's fault. But some of these buildings are like decrepit and let's not pretend like they aren't, you know, like you don't get rid of COVID. You don't say you have a safe school just because you say you have a safe school. You say you have a safe school if you actually do things to make it safer. And so, um, you know, we gotta, we gotta just keep pushing to, to make things safer because it's not just like my work environment. It's your learning environment. It's our environment that we exist together. So we need to make sure that like, if, if I'm going to say, if I'm going to stand there and tell a student, yeah, this place is safe. I'm not going to lie to them. Like I have to be, like, I have to be honest and have the full, full, like confidence that that this this space is safe and if an educator enters that space and says yeah this isn't safe this isn't going to be good enough for my kids we should listen to that we shouldn't just we shouldn't just like put a hold on or stop that person from talking just because it goes against something that you know because it makes people feel uncomfortable or it's a little annoying it's like we got to be we got to be like vigilant about this otherwise we're going to see even with a vaccination happening we're going to see a spike in 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 uh positive transmissions if we don't if we're not like safe and keeping an eye on safety above all else instead of keeping it open just to help mom and dad or help the parents go back to work go back to their job so they don't have to worry about childcare, which is like a you know some some of the rhetoric I've heard, not from people in the in the school district or even in the buildings, but more sometimes I hear from if you read internet commentary or how people view schools. Right. So, what what kind of are you looking um, forward to implementing as president of an NTI, or what are you looking ahead to? I'm really looking ahead to. Um, honestly being like taking some of the things i've learned especially being at west like the anti-racism work that we've done and the conversations 
and bringing that on a larger scale to the union. Um, you know, teachers are not perfect. Um, educators are not perfect. We need to do a better job of understanding our role in past racial harm and our role in terms of being people of privilege, whether that's uh, racial privilege, whether that's gender identity privilege, whether that's um, ableist privilege, um, you know, or, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to unpack our privileges and then figure out, okay, what can we do to make this this environment, this community, this system better and working for everyone? Um, you know, and, and in the past, it's we've been primarily focused on, you know, making sure that people are getting paid and, and the working conditions are safe and people aren't getting like teachers or educators aren't getting hurt by just because the administrator doesn't like them. And we got to expand that and think about what are we doing in terms of helping our community feel safe? What are we doing to, um, to really make this system work and actually be anti-racist and not just put it on a, put it on a board or on a sticky note and say, slap it on and say, Hey, we're anti-racist, but actually like, like do the work and change some things and push for changes and things. Um, that's the only way this, this stuff is going to work. So, I mean, talk about kind of like the school to prison pipeline and, and kind of what you've noticed as far as uh, racial inequities. And, and I, I mean, we've talked a little bit about it, but just in the schools and kind of how that leads to criminal justice. Well, I think what happens a lot is we tend to... The way privilege and systemic racism works, especially in the school setting, is from a very early, from very early on, we tend to categorize certain kids, whether it's by race or gender identity or what have you, into certain groups and certain boxes. And if they, if they do something that might like be considered disruptive, the way we approach it, just because of implicit biases or explicit biases is we'll say, well, this kid's a troublemaker. Um, this kid, like, deserves to be, you know, deserves a suspension or deserves, you know, to a detention. And it starts small like that, like a detention or a, hey, you know, you, you lose this privilege, you know, you don't get to play with the basketball or, you know, you, you, know, you don't get the treat. But what inevitably happens is that child internalizes that and then all of a sudden it's a system where they're constantly like being set up to fail. They're told, do this rule, don't do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And if they step out of line, they get dinged. Meanwhile, other kids who look differently than them might do the exact same thing and they get they get like a, oh, well, you know, kids will be kids. They're just a young person. They're, you know, they made a mistake. You know, there's a lot more like understanding and what happens is, like, inevitably, once you get to, like, middle school and high school, we begin seeing, like, students with the, doing the same behaviors, like, getting very different outcomes. I'll give you a perfect example of that. A student who might have their cell phone in class, which, uh, you know, back in the day, pre-COVID, was considered a big deal. The teacher that looks at, you know, um, and I've had to deal with this as a behavior responder, teacher who looks at a white student with their cell phone out, they might say, hey, put it away. The kid like does, then they see it out again. They say, hey, put it away. And they might not, or they keep on having it out. You know, they might be annoyed by that. Meanwhile, a child of color, they got their cell phone out. It becomes like a bigger issue. It becomes a, hey, put it away or else like I call your parent or hey, put it away or else you get detention. Hey, put it away or else. I call for behavior support and Mr. Jones or Miss Cassidy or Miss Pryor or Coach Gaines or, you know, one of the behavior responders is going to come and take your phone away. And that, and, you know, it's like, yeah, like both kids, pro students probably shouldn't have their cell phones out. But the way it's dealt with are completely different ways. And that's like seeing how the system works very differently for people of different of different races or different of, of different races 
then that mentality carries out into the community, you know, and then it's, then it's, so when we say school to prison pipeline, it's like, we are conditioning ourselves. We're conditioning our kids into accepting the fact that like children of one race should be treated differently than children of a different race. And that through that treatment, you know, the same behavior, one can be, you know, given a slap on the wrist or just like probation and the other kid goes to prison for it, you know, and, and that's, and that's the, I mean, that's one aspect of the school to prison pipeline. The other one is that we, we don't do enough to, to like, honestly encourage students to, to like figure out their own path. We kind of set these paths for them and say, you're going to do this. You're going to do this. But what we rarely ever do is ask them, what do you want to do? How can we make this work? And, you know, especially for children of color where systemically they, the system isn't set up for them. So when they try to do things that deviate from the system, that's considered like maybe not like legally criminal, but it's considered like culturally criminal. And then they're, you know, then they don't get the same supports or the same benefit of the doubt that might lead to maybe not prison, but definitely ostracism being ostracized from opportunities and success. And, you know, that's a huge, that's a huge thing that we need to like be very blunt about um, in terms of like being honest and addressing. Uh, if we don't call it out, if we don't, if we pretend like, hey, this isn't a thing um, and don't realize our role in it, then we are just making the same thing happen over and over again, because this is not new. This is not like a 20 year phenomena or something that just happened with your generation or my generation. You know, um, this has been something that's been going on in our schools with different races, different groups, um, different like socioeconomic classes for like centuries. And we, we need to, we need to like own that and be like, okay, what, we have to do some different things. Otherwise, we're just going to continue having the same results. Um, you know, so, yeah, that's, I hope, like, with with the work with the union and in working with the district on that, we can, we can actually, um, and actually listening to students on what they need and what their hopes and dreams are and helping them pursue it, we could probably, or we will be able to, you know, make sure that that pipeline is busted, but it, it's going to mean that we have to change a lot of things that we just assume are good, you know, um, you know, and including like, okay, less suspensions, more restorative justice, you know, less, less, uh, less like do this or else the hammer comes down and more like, Hey, Let's bring you back into the community. Let's figure out ways we're going to heal together. So, so yeah, that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah. So last question. I mean, what do you think this year has, has taught um, the education world this year of online school? What do you think, how do you think it has maybe changed the way that, teachers teach or, or what do you think it has done to the educational world and, and how are we going to apply that when we come back to school? That's an extremely good set of questions that I do not have all the answers for because we're right. also still in the middle of it. So right. it's like those are but those are things that like we need to keep on bringing up. I will say this um, early on and I'm talking like right when we, you know, started you know, with the inequities um, of education, like, you know, in March of 2020, it exposed a lot of things. It was things that were already there that we just wanted to pretend like they didn't exist. You know, when you're saying, hey, we're all going to go on Chromebooks, we expose the inequities of internet access and utility access and even Chromebook access. And, you know, Oh, you're missing your Chromebook or something's broke. Well, fill out this Google form. You have electronics, right? Like, uh, you know, we made a lot of assumptions on access that we were not equipped to, to solve. So one of the things that we have changed and we will continue to need to change is to always be 
looking at the experiences and and using them as a way to say how are we increasing access as opposed to just making assumptions you know so when we go back into the building you know there's a lot of assumptions that are made oh we assume that you're going to have excellent transportation which is not always the case we're going to assume that you're going to have access to certain needs like food and and shelter and and we know like COVID has exposed a lot of those things aren't the case with our students and families. Um, we're going to assume you're going to have enough money to deal with this. And it's like, no, COVID has exposed that too. And I think it's just like we, when we, as we're coming back or as we're talking about transitioning back, we need to talk about how are we going to keep that in our forefront from whatever changes we make. We've had to make a lot of changes with how we teach, you know, I mean, we've had teachers who honestly never did a Google classroom and now they're running classroom zooms with Pear Decks and, you know, all sorts of, there's all sorts of software things and adjustments that teachers have had to make. But then there's also a lot of relationships, like the relationships are different virtually, right? Like to be able to like sit next to someone and work through something is in some ways a lot easier than like working that same problem or that same issue through a zoom. And so like, we've had to like really refocus how we're going to actually work on these things. And also just like understanding the mental health. Like there's one thing that I've heard since the jump is that we give our kids way too much work to do um, virtually. And you know, we try to scale back, but then we have our own bosses. And I'm not talking about Dr. Baran. I'm talking like people in the district, people at the state who are like, no, you got to give them more, more, more. So like, how do we balance that? And I feel like that's always a big push pull with teachers is like, we want to be able to move you along and, and make you a more well-rounded, more academically able person. But at the same time, we know we're, we're giving you too much <laughs> at the same time and understanding like when we get back to the building, we're going to have to ha have a hard, fast look on like, okay, like I, I was talking to some teachers yesterday during the teach out. Some of them are like, yeah, I'm no longer doing homework. Like when we get back, like, I'm just, I'm just going to stop like giving my kids homework. I kind of have to do it now because this is the really the only way we can, we can do it. But like, you know, they've changed the way they're grading. They've changed the way how much emphasis they put on tests or certain projects. They've had to change, like, all their units because some of them were like, okay, we're going to do hands-on activities. Well, we can't do hands-on activities now. Um, so there, this will, this will, there will be changes that we will honestly not even realize have been changed until we're like, until, like, you're, you're in college or you're 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 dancing <laughs> like pursuing your dance career somewhere like there are going to be changes we made that stem from this past year so some of it is like you know it's like a ripple in a pond except it's probably more of a tidal wave that we're gonna it's gonna change a whole bunch of things that we we haven't even we haven't even figured out yet you know just just in terms of how we do school because so much of it was predicated has been predicated on things that weren't that were like even like 19th and 20th century ideas and it's like okay well you know now we we have to we have to change if we don't then you know we're just we're just making a pandemic a pandemic issue far far worse so there's going to be a lot of changes um and i think it's 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 like a shock to the system what happens after that shock is up to us yeah. So, I mean, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners or tell the listeners at all? I would say just the amount of, um, and this is not to get too butt kissy, but like the amount of grace and patience that our young people and our families and our educators, like anyone involved in the system, I know it's easy to, to be like, well, this part really, really sucked, but like the amount of like just overall grace and, 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 and uh, understanding and empathy that people have been able to show young people to teachers, teachers, hopefully teachers to young people, um, parents and families to both their students and 
and and staff like we have exposed also great like reserves of of love during this time and i hope we don't lose sight of that because this past year has been difficult but it's also brought out some really interesting and really beautiful things out of people and hopefully we don't lose sight of that as well because that is also true someone can be both stressed and also be like doing amazing things you know and those are not those are not um those are not like you know those are not in conflict with each other so i would say hopefully we also you know as we're moving hopefully moving out of this stage in our lives or in our in our community that we uh that we remember all the all the beautiful things we've done been able to accomplish this past year because we dug deep into ourselves The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by me, Ben Brown, cover art, editing, producing, and booking also by me. If you are a Madisonian and would like to be on the show or know someone who would like to be on the show, please email me at ben at themadisonianpodcast.com to express interest. Please support us by buying our merch at teespring.com slash store slash the Madisonian podcast or click the link in the description of this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and please keep an eye out for next week's episode.